I like you beer. For that. I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Um, what do you like to drink? Next. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brett Kavanaugh. I remember you. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP in Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX in Janesville, Wisconsin, on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates from coast to coast, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, A quick tweet from someone who I don't even know who this person is. His name is Alex Montejano. He tweets, if selling a gay couple a wedding cake means a Christian baker participated in their marriage, does selling a gun to a murderer mean a Christian gun store owner participated in the murder? Wow, that's quite profound. Good question, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think I'm going to just leave that one, however, right there for now, though it might be worth exploring uh, in more detail in the future. Because I need to keep things short today, if I can, as we will be joined momentarily by Congressman Hank Johnson, Democrat from the from Georgia's fourth congressional district, following a letter that he, as chair of the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee that oversees the courts, the federal courts in this country, including the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, he and Judiciary Chair uh, Jerry Nadler sent a letter on Tuesday to the National Archives requesting a a whole passel of records and documents from now Justice Brett Kavanaugh's time working in the White House Counsel's Office during the George W. Bush administration from 2001 to 2003 uh, and from his time as White House Staff Secretary during that same administration from 2003 to 2006. Documents that the Republican-led Senate Judiciary Committee never bothered to even request before Kavanaugh's lifetime appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court was rammed through the U.S. Senate late last year. Now, why would Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee 
now be asking uh, to, to see those documents at this time? Well, Congressman Johnson will be here to tell us. And I've got a number of other things I want to ask him as well, like why he is not on the list of the now majority of House Democrats who are calling for a formal impeachment inquiry on that judiciary panel of one Donald J. Trump. That is shortly he'll be with us. Uh, One other tweet I'll share for now from Sarah Schaefer, who is a writer and a comedian. She tweeted yesterday, quote, I'm assuming the El Paso shooter is being held in a rancid cage where he has to sleep on the floor and drink from the toilet and not take a shower or receive medical care for weeks on end? That's what you get for breaking the law, correct? She asks. Another good tweet and another good point. We would not treat mass murderers that way. They would sue if we did and we would lose. We would not treat mass murderers the way that we are currently treating law-abiding migrants who did nothing more than cross the border and legally turn themselves in to seek asylum. All of, that's perfectly illegal. That's perfectly legal. Uh, anyway, uh, two good points from uh, the uh, from the Twitter sphere. So remember those soft spoken, gentle, conciliatory words that Donald Trump read off the teleprompter at the White House on Monday after the weekend of mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, which resulted in the deaths of 31 and dozens more critically injured. You'll recall that he claimed to be decrying white nationalism and racism without taking any personal responsibility for helping to fuel that fire while uh, claiming to be reaching out to Democrats for bipartisan solutions to our nation's epidemic of gun violence, even though he offered no specific measures for actually doing so. Still, speaking Monday from the teleprompter in the White House, Trump said this. Now is the time to set destructive partisanship aside, so destructive and find the courage to answer hatred with unity, devotion, and love. Set destructive partisanship aside. Find courage to answer with unity, devotion, and love. Well, you will be shocked to learn that that did not last long. (laughs) Hours after President Trump headed to Dayton and El Paso on Wednesday on a mission to, quote, help heal... After a mass shooting apparently motivated in El Paso by anti-immigrant hatred, he lashed out at former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, the uh, Democratic presidential candidate and native son of El Paso, for supposedly changing his name to appeal to Hispanic voters. Trump tweeted just before midnight on Tuesday, so he barely lasted 24 hours in his promise to set destructive partisanship aside, Desi Doyen. Did you think, shouldn't he get credit for lasting that long? No, absolutely not. That's that's, that's that's like a sub-subground level of below the bar. Yeah, well, that's kind of where the bar is. Anyway, uh, he tweeted, Beto... Phony name to indicate Hispanic heritage O'Rourke, who is embarrassed by my last visit to the great state of Texas, where I trounced him and is now even more embarrassed by polling at one percent in the Democrat primary, should respect the victims and law enforcement and be quiet. That's what Trump tweeted just before midnight on Tuesday. 
The attack uh, raised uh, the discredited claim that O'Rourke had adopted a Spanish-language nickname as a political tactic, but it uh, struck a jarring tone barely 24 hours after Trump had called for bipartisan cooperation in the wake of the two mass shootings over the weekend that claimed at least 31 lives, according to Washington Post. O'Rourke, who was raised in El Paso and represented the area in Congress for six years, has relentlessly criticized the president in the wake of the shooting. O'Rourke suggested that Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric helped inspire the shooter, who police uh, believe left a manifesto that raged against a Hispanic invasion of Texas. Trump has derisively used the word invasion repeatedly to describe migrants coming uh, to this country, largely from Central America to the U.S., to claim asylum. This is an invasion. I was badly criticized for using the word invasion. It's an invasion. People hate the word invasion, but that's what it is. It's an invasion. Uh, I call it invasion. They always get upset when I say an invasion, but it really is somewhat of an invasion because I consider it an invasion. That's an invasion. That's not, that's an invasion. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion, but this is an invasion and nobody's even questioning that. So, yeah, he's kind of used that word before. Just the same word that the uh, shooter in El Paso reportedly used. Now, O'Rourke had said at a vigil, a vigil on Sunday that, quote, we have a president right now who traffics in this hatred, who incites this violence, who calls Mexican immigrants, rapists and criminals, calls asylum seekers animals and an infestation, all of which, by the way, is 100 percent true. That was on Sunday before Donald Tr uh, Trump's call for unity on Monday before he then lashed out at O'Rourke on Tuesday. In hitting back at O'Rourke, Trump resurrected that old uh, claim uh, that he had shunned his uh, given name of Robert for, uh, for Beto, a common Hispanic nickname, uh, as a cynical ploy for votes. You'll recall that Senator Ted Cruz, whose actual name, by the way, as the son of Cuban immigrants, is actually Rafael, but he goes by Ted. He made a similar claim in uh, in an in ads uh, released just after O'Rourke won the primary in Texas to challenge him last year for the U.S. Senate. Uh, anyway, the claim was raised again on Tuesday night by a guest on Fox News, Tux, Tucker Carlson's show, where O'Rourke was compared to Rachel Dolezal. Remember her, the white woman, uh, the Really? Yes. They really they think that's the same idea. Yeah, same wow. thing. A white woman and a former NAACP uh, official who posed as a black woman. So uh, anyway, you know, O'Rourke told The Washington Post that he was actually given the nickname growing up in El Paso. He even provided a childhood photo. And it's a darling photo, by the way, where he wore a shirt with a nickname on it. Beto, right across the front. Uh, he couldn't have been more than three years old in this picture. Well, obviously, Beto's parents, and yeah. he himself as a three-year-old, yes. decided that way in advance of his presidential oh, yes. run and his Senate run that he needed to uh, to fake this. Yes. Oh, it's devious. Clearly, unchecked ambition, even as a two-year-old, planning to win votes with a Hispanic-ish sounding name. Uh, anyway, he was also using the nickname in newspaper stories as early as 2002, which is a decade before he ever ran for Congress. 
according to the Post, uh, responding to Trump's tweet early on Wednesday morning in which Trump had told him to keep quiet. O'Rourke uh, ignored the dig at his name and instead promised to continue criticizing the president. He retweeted Trump's tweet and added 22 people in my hometown are dead after an act of terror inspired by your racism. El Paso will not be quiet and neither will I. Well, we will see how quiet El Paso will remain. Even as we go to air, Donald Trump is uh, in El Paso. He arrived late on Wednesday afternoon after remaining largely out of public view uh, when he visited Dayton, Ohio, on a day of visits intended to console cities recovering from the pair of mass shootings over the weekend. As he left the White House on Wednesday morning, Trump suggested he would refrain from attacking his political adversaries during the trip. He said, I would like to stay out of the political fray. That, of course, was just hours after he had attacked Beto O'Rourke. And, of course, that detente lasted mere hours. By the time Trump had left Dayton and boarded Air Force One for El Paso, he had not even gotten to El Paso yet. He was back on Twitter and attacking Democrats. He lashed out at Ohio Senator Jared uh, Sherrod Brown and Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, who he had uh, met and spoke with both of them in Dayton. He falsely accused them of mischaracterizing the reception that he received during about two hours of meetings at Miami Valley Hospital with first responders, hospital staff and survivors of the shooting in Dayton early Sunday morning, which left nine dead. Trump tweeted, It was a warm and wonderful visit, tremendous enthusiasm, and even love. Then I saw failed presidential candidate Sherrod Brown and Mayor Whaley totally misrepresenting what took place inside the hospital. Their news conference after I left for El Paso was a fraud. I suspect he did not see the news conference. Neither Brown nor Whaley said Trump received a poor reception at the hospital. Speaking to reporters after Trump's visit uh, to Dayton, Brown said that Trump was comforting in his talks with patients at the hospital. Whaley, Mayor Whaley, was uh, even more confused. She said, I don't I mean, I'm really confused as she read Trump's tweets about her and Brown, according to a video that was posted by the Cincinnati Inquirer. We said he was treated like very well, so I don't know why they're talking about misrepresenting. Uh, Anyway, aside from brief appearances on the airport tarmac as he arrived and departed, Trump did not speak publicly or allow himself to be photographed. Reporters traveling with him were secluded as he took part in what aides described as meetings at uh, Miami Valley Hospital with first responders, hospital staff and survivors of the shooting. The visit was a marked break with tradition, The Washington Post notes. As presidents visiting grieving communities typically offer public condolences and use the opportunity to try to comfort the nation, both Brown and uh, the Dayton mayor said that they used their time with Trump to lobby him to push for an assault weapons ban and stronger background checks, among other measures. Nonetheless, White House uh, social media Dan Scavino lashed out at the two Democrats, accused them of, quote, lying and completely mischaracterizing what took place with presidents with the president's visit to the hospital today. 
so everyone's just sort of baffled by that. Uh, the uh, this uh, Trump White House, they just keep setting their destructive partisanship aside, don't they? And they're finding the courage to answer hatred with unity, devotion and love. Uh, Scavino said the president was treated like a rock star inside the hospital, which was all caught on video. They'll all they all loved seeing their great president. Jesus. Anyway, which is not true because it wasn't all caught on video. He wasn't allowing himself to be photographed. There was probably private video that they're just not sharing with anybody. Well, I will say that New York Times columnist Charles Blow did tweet out a video and say, oh, my God, you are not already cutting a campaign ad out of this visit to Dayton. Oh, yeah, of course they are. Of course. Anyway, uh, soon after that, uh, he flew to El Paso. But before he even got there, he uh, criticized Democrats on Twitter, uh, including uh, Joe Biden, said he watched some footage of Joe Biden delivering remarks today in Iowa, said the speech was so boring. The lamestream media will die in the ratings and clicks with this guy. It'll be over for them, not to mention for the country. It'll be one big crash, but at least China will be happy. So this is how he is, you know, putting destructive partisanship aside. Biden's response uh, to Trump in return was that he should get a life. Trump was greeted by scores of protesters in downtown Dayton. He was also expected to encounter more uh, in uh, in El Paso, where 22 people died Saturday in that massacre that appeared to target immigrants. Uh, Back in Dayton, by the way, there was a, a, a caravan of emergency vehicles that were parked in such a way to separate protesters from the back entrance where the motorcade, the president's motorcade pulled in and, of course, shielded him from protesters and and from the public there. But speaking to reporters before he left Washington this morning, he dismissed critics who have suggested that his rhetoric on race and immigration is partly to blame for a rise in hate-inspired violence such as that in El Paso. He said, quote, I think my rhetoric brings people together. Wow. <laughs> he said uh, that he is concerned about the rise of any group of hate, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's any other kind of supremacy. So, you know, white supremacy and all of the other types of supremacy, they're all bad, yet they all have fine people. He called his critics people who are looking for political gain. Not him, though. Uh, Meanwhile, in El Paso, uh, some residents of the city were distressed by his visit. Albert Hernandez, 55-year-old man who used to support Trump, said that changed over the weekend when his sister and his brother-in-law were gunned down by the El Paso shooter. He said in recent years that his sister and her husband shared concerns that Trump was stoking racist and xenophobic sentiment with his rhetoric. Until this point, other relatives, including him, uh, would often disagree. He said, I was the one who would tell them they were exaggerating. But now with this tragedy, it is the total opposite. Now that it has hit this family, people are starting to wake up. Funny how that happens. Trump, uh, he said, does not seem to understand that he needs to stop because he's awakening these killers. He doesn't seem to understand that these people, these assassins, feel like they are his soldiers. 
Trump met uh, with uh, some family members of the shooting victims, uh, apparently, when he uh, visited El Paso on Wednesday. Hernandez, however, said no one from his family received an invitation from the president's office. Even if they had, he added, he likely would have not attended. Honestly, he said, as a proud American, a a patriotic American, I think Trump should stay away from El Paso. He is making it worse. So that's where we are today. And by the way, after his uh, scripted calls for unity on Monday, Trump also managed to tie the shooter in Dayton to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in another tweet uh, early this morning. But hey, let's uh, let's talk to someone who isn't insane, shall we? (laughs) About uh, our stolen U.S. Supreme Court and what, if anything, Democrats in Congress might plan on doing about it. Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia is standing by to join us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Democrats in the U.S. House are trying to get some truth. We'll see if they are successful. Top Democrats on the U.S. House Judiciary Committee on Tuesday sent a letter to the National Archives and Records Administration requesting the production of documents from Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's tenure as a White House lawyer and from during his three years of service as White House staff secretary, both during the George W. Bush administration. The letter, signed by House Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler and Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia, who chairs the Judiciary Subcommittee overseeing the federal courts, points specifically to materials that were either withheld from or not requested by the Republican-led U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee during Kavanaugh's contentious confirmation fight last year. And yes, that was just late last year. I know it seems an eternity ago. But under the Presidential Records Act, congressional committees of jurisdiction can access records that contain information that is needed for the conduct of their business and that is not otherwise available, according to the statute. Citing that statute to the National Archives, the Democrats explain the requested documents are relevant to ethics and transparency legislation that Congress is considering now for the federal judiciary. 
And they cite essentially three groups of documents from Kavanaugh's service during the Bush administration as both White House counsel and then as staff secretary. During Kavanaugh's confirmation proceedings last year, the Senate Judiciary Chair Chuck Grassley had requested only documents from Kavanaugh's service in the White House Counsel's Office from 2001 to 2003. And of those records turned over to Grassley, thousands of documents had reportedly been withheld after a review by Kavanaugh's own personal attorney. As a result of this process, the Democrats write in their letter, the Senate Judiciary Committee received only a small fraction of Justice Kavanaugh's White House records before voting on his nomination. They are now seeking both the documents that were turned over to the Grassley uh, Committee and those that were not from Kavanaugh's time in the White House Counsel's Office. Moreover, They also request all records that pertain to Kavanaugh's tenure as White House staff secretary from 2003 to 2006, which Grassley never even sought. That uh, including, quote, emails sent to or received by Justice Kavanaugh, including emails on which he was a carbon or blind copy recipient, including documents attached to such emails, and the textual records contained in Justice Kavanaugh's office files from the period during which he served as staff secretary. That, again, was from 2003 to 2006. A whole lot of stuff went on during that period. None of those records have ever seen the light of day in public or in Congress, much less prior to last year's wildly contentious vote on Kavanaugh's lifetime appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. So why would Democrats in the House now seek those records? And what are the chances that they will actually be turned over on a voluntary basis by the National Archive? Well, here with hopefully some answers to those questions and a few other related ones that I hope to ask is one of the two signatories on that letter. Congressman Hank Johnson represents the great state of Georgia's 4th Congressional District and serves on the House Judiciary Committee, where he also serves as chair of the Subcommittee on Courts, Intellectual Property and the Internet. Congressman, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me, Brad, and thanks for the great work that you do illuminating the public on these issues of uh, government that they need to know about that are so relevant to uh, our lives. You're you're very kind to say so, sir, but I'm not going to be any nicer in my questioning just because of that. Uh, as, uh, as noted, I, I, I've got several things to ask, but as it's been a while since you've been on the show, I guess it's, you know, been a slow news year or so. Uh, let's start with this document. Or maybe I'm in your doghouse for some reason. No, I don't know. No, not yet, but we'll see how things go. Uh, let's start with this uh, document request. Uh, you're, you're, you note in the in the letter that the Judiciary Committee's jurisdiction encompasses the laws governing judicial ethics and the judicial oath of office, judicial disqualification and misconduct, and the organization of the Supreme Court, 
and that your subcommittee is considering legislative proposals to create a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices and is reviewing proposals regarding transparency in the court's proceedings, the adequacy of justices' financial disclosures, and the circumstances in which justices or judges must disqualify themselves from cases. Uh, In fact, while there is a code of conduct explaining uh, circumstances requiring recusal, etc., for all judges in the federal court system across the country, those rules specifically do not apply to the U.S. Supreme Court or its justices. Recusals there are completely optional and left up to each justice to decide on their own. Am I correct on that, sir? Yeah, that is correct. The uh, judicial rules of ethics uh, only apply to judges below the U.S. Supreme Court. Those are uh, courts that are set up. Uh, they are authorized under uh, Article 3, mm-hmm. uh, but Congress has set uh, these courts up. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is the only court that is recognized uh, by the Constitution under Article 3. And so, therefore, uh, the thinking has been that uh, that is a court that is not as subject to legislative or Article One authority as mm-hmm. the other courts that the Article One uh, legislative branch set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's a theory that uh, remains to be tested. And uh, But the bottom line is the U.S. Supreme Court has not seen fit to apply a, rule, a, a code of ethics to itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the legislation which I have introduced, which is the Supreme Court Ethics Act, Mm -hmm. would require the the Judicial Conference, which is a group of uh, judges Mm -hmm. uh, set up by the U.S. Supreme Court that governs the operations of the uh, courts. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would require that Judicial um, uh, Conference to promulgate a code of ethics for the U.S. Supreme Court to apply to itself. And uh, then we would, at that point, have a code of ethics that applies to the to the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. But as you but, as you said, that would be something that would then need to be tested, whether it was a, a violation of the separation of powers, whether uh, the Supreme, whether the uh, uh, Congress could actually pass a law that puts essentially a mandate on the uh, Supreme Court, right? That, that's correct. And uh, but meanwhile, because of the pressure that uh, that it feels. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is in the process of now promulgating its own code of ethics mm. for itself. And that remains to have been uh, released to the public. I'm not sure that uh, the justices have completed their work on their own code of ethics, but certainly uh, it would be good for them to apply a code of ethics to themselves and that would uh, negate the need for there to be any kind of legislative uh, fix in that regard. So uh, I want to respect the autonomy of the uh, third co-equal branch of government, mm-hmm. but yet and still there are they they have to be accountable. Mm-hmm. They are not uh, 
unaccountable, and they certainly can be uh, subject to uh, the edicts of the legislative branch. But the legislative branch wants to be very respectful of the autonomy, Mm -hmm. of the need for autonomy of the judicial branch. And so I look forward to the judicial branch, the U.S. Supreme Court, applying a code of ethics to itself. So how does this document request now for uh, Justice, for now, Justice Kavanaugh, apply here? What are you, what are you hoping to discover in these documents uh, from his time, both as uh, in the White House Counsel's Office and those documents from his time as White House Staff uh, Secretary that nobody has seen? What are you hoping to discover in those, uh, in those records? Well, I, I hope to discover that Justice Kavanaugh has been completely forthright and honest with the U.S. Senate during its confirmation process. Moreover, I hope to find that uh, the conduct of uh, Justice Kavanaugh during his time uh, as secretary mm-hmm. uh, with the um, Office of, uh, of Counsel for the President uh, uh, at all times conducted himself in a way that uh, would uh, be in keeping with that of someone who now serves on the U.S. uh, Supreme Court with a lifetime tenure. Um, And, of course, that is only subject to the House's uh, uh, ability to impeach Mm -hmm. uh, should should there be a need for it. And so the American people need to know Uh, the uh, conduct of Justice Kavanaugh while he was working for the Bush administration at a time when, uh, you know, we were running up to the uh, war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. We were dealing with uh, torturing uh, people uh, who were captured on the battlefield. Yep. Uh, What role did uh, Justice Kavanaugh play in the many decisions that uh, the just that the uh, Bush administration took mm-hmm. during that time? Uh, it was a political uh, position as well as a policy position, and, and the American people deserve to know uh, who we have on the U.S. Supreme Court, what his background is, and um, and if and if he was honest with the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his uh, confirmation proceedings. Now, presuming that you do get those materials, uh, and and let's say you do find something that contradicts uh, what he told the Senate, uh, something troubling or even disqualifying from his uh, from his record, your committee does have the jurisdiction to begin impeachment proceedings of uh, both federal judges and Supreme Court justices. Is am I correct there? It, that is correct. And um, so these materials could be considered for something like that. If they are turned over, would they be uh, the, these records? Are these records that uh, Congress would be able to share with the public, in fact? Uh, yes, they would. I mean, it makes, no, mm-hmm. uh, it makes no difference to the public for there to be secret documents that they are not uh, privy to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my aim would be for his records to be um, known by the public as they should have been during the confirmation process Mm -hmm. uh, for the U.S. Senate, which they 
uh, under the leadership of uh, the Republicans who controlled the judicial co- Judiciary Committee at the time, they weren't interested in anything other than a speedy confirmation. Uh, they weren't interested in whether uh, the background of Justice Kavanaugh uh, lent itself mm-hmm. to him being confirmed or not. And as I uh, noted, they just simply wanted to confirm him. Yeah, as I noted uh, in the intro, there were thousands of documents that were actually reviewed uh, before they were turned over to uh, Chuck Grassley in the Senate that were actually reviewed by Kavanaugh's personal attorney and withheld. Uh, some 2,000 documents, as I, as I understand it, were not oh. given over to the committee. Will, that, will, the, uh, will Justice Kavanaugh's personal attorney have uh, once again the say-so over which documents actually get turned over to you guys? No, because our request is to the National Archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that uh, documents were withheld on the basis of a private lawyer handpicked for the job mm-hmm. uh, deciding what the Senate would see or not. And uh, so we won't have that same uh, uh, burden uh, in terms of receiving the documents. Our burden mm-hmm. this time will be uh, the Trump administration's uh, edict to obstruct all congressional oversight mm-hmm. and uh, cooperation with uh, Congress in its oversight responsibility. That, I believe, will be our our burden, but we do not know since our letter just went out uh, yesterday. And that letter was a request for documents from the National Archives. It sounds like you do expect that the Trump administration may continue their extraordinary measures to... Uh, to block any and all such document production. Uh, if so, uh, do you and your uh, co-signatory there, uh, Chairman Nadler, intend to uh, to subpoena if necessary, to go to court if necessary, to get at these documents? Yeah, that, I believe that that would be uh, our next course of action should we mm-hmm. not be able to receive these uh, documents voluntarily. I uh, very much look forward to, uh, to what we learn from this and what, if anything, happens. Do you have any sense whatsoever? I realize you may just be guessing at this point, but do you have any sense whatsoever of the, the timeline that we're looking at? I, I, I don't think uh, in your letter that you included a, uh, uh, a deadline for turning these documents over from the National Archive. Uh, is this something we can look forward to in the next couple of months, or are we going to be uh, looking at these over the next several years? At this point, well, you know, I mean, we sh- we have to always be in the in the posture of reasonably accommodating, or or, or uh, mm-hmm. accepting any reasonable accommodations that the National Archives may need in its production of the documents, and so we await uh, their response to the letter, mm-hmm. and we stand ready to. Um, allow for reasonable accommodations. Perhaps they are still uh, looking for uh, and compiling the uh, data which we have asked for. And if that is their response, uh, we will uh, abide by that and look forward to them completing that task. If they have uh, all of the documents in hand at this time, then I would expect that they would uh, turn them over or assert some type of privilege, uh, which would uh, be a rather
rationale or a basis for them not turning it over, and we'll deal with that once we get there. Uh, well, Congressman Johnson, I am very happy that you have not forgotten about uh, this uh, this matter. It seems like uh, so long ago, even though it was just late last year, that this confirmation process happened. So I'm glad you are uh, still on it. Uh, I've got, as I mentioned, a couple of other sort of related questions here. Uh, as, as chair of the House subcommittee that oversees our nation's courts, uh, do you feel uh, like I do and like I know many other Americans do that our U- U.S. Supreme Court has been stolen, that the Republican majority uh, is uh, is stolen and frankly illegitimate as I see it? And if so, do you feel like I do that when and if Democrats can win back the Senate and the White House and uh, hopefully retain their House majority, that uh, that you all should exercise the statutory right to expand the U.S. Supreme Court to unpack it, if you will, by law in order to restore what rightfully should have been a Democratic majority? Well, I believe that uh, it's no question that the courts have been stacked with judges with a particular political bent of mind, Mm -hmm. uh, and they have been pre-cleared and selected by the uh, very political uh, organization, the Federalist Society, Mm -hmm. which is founded and headed by a well-known political operative uh, by the name of Leo, I believe is his name. Mm -hmm. And so he has been very effective in enabling the uh, installation of judges who have come through his fraternity, his secret society. Right. Every everyone is not uh, a member uh, or allowed to become members of it. Only uh, select uh, individuals, mm-hmm. and uh, they are steeped in a economic philosophy uh, that is in keeping with Republican economic philosophy. Uh, corporate personhood uh, is uh, something that they hold quite dear. And uh, also laissez-faire capitalism uh, is what their philosophy upholds. And uh, their rulings are uh, in keeping with those philosophies. Right. And they have stacked the courts with those types of judges. Mm -hmm. They've stacked the U.S. Supreme Court uh, with uh, two appointed by President Trump. And uh, so he's paying back the debt that he owes uh, for his election. Uh, And if he should get any more uh, selections on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, I expect that those will be in keeping with uh, his last two. And that means that the legislative branch has to look at the operations of the court to see whether or not uh, the court's continue to operate in the way that the framers intended, and they intended uh, not a, a false, fake, um, uh, originalist, mm-hmm. uh, thinking, uh, textualist, uh, abiding by U.S. Supreme Court. They look at I believe they meant for the Constitution to be a living document, one that is uh, construed in accordance with the times. And so when we have a backward-looking U.S. Supreme Court 
that is trying to determine the original intent of the framers who had no way of knowing what the future would hold, they're holding the future back and it's hurting America. And so we, as the legislative branch, with the power to expand the Supreme Court, I mean, nothing in the uh, Constitution says that it will be a uh, a court of nine justices. Mm -hmm. So we have to uh, look at uh, whether or not it's in the efficiency of uh, of our process that we need to expand the court. So uh, there's not, there's nothing in the Constitution that says each and every justice uh, should be on the panel that decides each and every case that comes before the U.S. Supreme Court. So there could be a scenario where there would be a larger group of uh, justices and uh, a number of them would be selected to uh, handle or, or decide a particular case that would come in front of them. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there are a number of different proposals that uh, could make the operations of the Supreme Court better. They only accept a small percentage of the cases that uh, come before them. Uh, perhaps they should uh, be staffed with justices such that they could consider more cases. So we need to consider all of these possibilities. We need to hear from uh, experts uh, in academia as well as uh, in the practice of law uh, about uh, the operations of the court and whether or not it could be better. Well, put me down, Congressman, for uh, a, a vote in favor of expanding the court, if only to respond to what the Republicans uh, did to it, to the U.S. Supreme Court in particular, but yes, the, the lower courts as well. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you are open to that expansion. Uh, just one reason why Democrats need to get back the uh, majority in the Senate and win back the White House next year, in my opinion. Uh, I've got just a... Yeah, go ahead. And one, and one thing, Brad, yeah. we really don't need to politicize the courts. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, the courts have been politicized. Yep. And so uh, the question is, what do we do? And how will the Supreme Court react to the fact that uh, the legislative branch is open to looking at alternatives to the current way that it does business? It may, it, it, you know, I mean, just because the Supreme Court justices have ruled predictably uh, against uh, civil rights, voting rights, prison reform, um, uh, corporate personhood, mm -hmm. uh, consumer protection, uh, the, just because they have ruled predictably uh, in those areas in the past does not mean that they will not, uh, as uh, Justice Souter mm -hmm. kind of had a uh, metamorphosis of thinking and uh, made start uh, doing a little better by way of the American people, in my humble opinion, as opposed to uh, being uh, so wedded to corporate interests. So, you know, I, I remain with an open mind about how the court will proceed uh, as we move into the future, 
as it considers these important cases that are coming up before it. Mm-hmm. So we'll just have to see. Uh, about two weeks ago in the Judiciary Committee, uh, Congressman, you questioned Robert Mueller yourself on several clear instances of obstruction of justice by Donald Trump when he was uh, when he asked his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to have the uh, special counsel fired and uh, then to lie about having done so and falsify records and so forth in the bargain. Uh, Congressman, there is now a majority of members in the Democratic caucus in the House who have publicly called for an official impeachment inquiry to be opened in your Judiciary Committee, including a majority on the panel uh, on the Judiciary panel on which you sit. Now, uh, CNN has a list of all the Democrats who have gone on record to call for an impeachment investigation. I think it's 118 now uh, to date. But, Congressman, there must be a mistake on their list because... I don't see your name on it for some reason, so I'm wondering, how do you explain what must clearly be an error on CNN's part? And, and well, in fact, would you like to now uh, do the right thing by correcting the record here on the broadcast, sir? Well, I, I, I knew somehow that I had made it to one of your lists, and uh, <laughs> that's probably the reason why. That CNN list is correct, and I'm not on it. Um, I believe that we are proceeding in the nature of an impeachment inquiry mm-hmm. uh, at this time, and uh, we're doing so without calling it an impeachment inquiry so as not to put the 31 uh, red to blue winners in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, new Democrats, uh, not to put them in jeopardy of not being able to come back and keep us in the majority in uh in 2020. I, I, I think we should note that uh, at, at this point, polls show that a majority of the American people are not in favor of impeachment. And certainly in some of those races where I think 16 of them were decided uh, by less than uh, a, a 3% margin of error, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that many of those districts uh, still do not support impeachment. And so I don't want to endanger our uh, majority Mm -hmm. in 2020. So I think we should proceed as we're doing. Uh, We're in the nature of a impeachment inquiry with our oversight uh, responsibilities. And I think we need to continue to press the action as we've been doing. And at some point, we may accumulate the record that we can then pass impeachment resolutions on and then proceed to uh, the Senate with the evidence, not just the Mueller report, but have the evidence, the testimony, Mm -hmm. the exhibits that support the testimony, uh, take that over to the uh, U.S. Senate and have a trial. And I I will just note, uh, Congressman, that uh, when Richard Nixon uh, was reelected in a landslide, um, and then impeachment proceedings began. He had 70 percent approval rating at the beginning of the impeachment proceedings uh, and then 30 percent at the end when he was forced to quit. So I, 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 I do hear what you're saying. I'm just not sure the uh, thinking that uh, an impeachment would actually help somehow Donald Trump. But you know more about these things than I do. Uh, last, well, it, it, yeah. it, would, it would certainly give him an uh, opportunity to uh, claim that he is being um, 
mistreated by the House of Representatives. He does that every. He does that every day and, anyway. And, and then once, once he uh, is uh, found not guilty by the Senate, then he can also claim that hey, the Senate has found that I am not guilty, yeah. and that would come right around the time of his uh, of his uh, uh, election. Yeah. And so I think uh, all in all, I, with the American people not being with impeachment at this time, I think we, there's no need for us to jeopardize uh, our majority uh, by saying that we are going to impeach the president right now. We just need to continue to gather the evidence. And as we do that, the American people's minds will change just as they did uh, with uh, Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. I hope you're right. Uh, Congressman, before you go, Georgia, we've been covering a lot uh, on this show. Uh, Georgia is moving from a 100% unverifiable touchscreen system to an all-new 100% unverifiable touchscreen system before the uh, a ballot marking device, computer ballot marking device before the 2020 presidential election in Georgia, which could finally flip blue uh, next year. Do you have the same concerns about this new system coming into Georgia as of now uh, that I do, rather than a system of hand-counted paper ballots there? I'm sorry, yeah, hand, hand-marked think, paper ballots. Yeah, I, I think the way to go is to have the uh, paper-marked, hand-marked paper ballots that are then scanned into a counting machine and counted, and then you have the paper ballots that you can test the results of the counting machine tally against, and that way you can have a verifiable vote you can have an accurate vote. You can have a vote that you can have a meaningful recount. Uh, but we cannot do it on this uh, new system that the uh, Georgia legislature has uh, authorized. And I think it's a $125, $150 million expenditure that uh, will be for a system that we can't even uh, rely on. And I think it's bad for the taxpayers, it's bad for the voters, it's bad for democracy, and um, uh, yeah, it's a bad move for Georgia. I'm with you on that. I'll keep working with you uh, on the uh, impeachment matter, but I think we're right on uh, right on target on, on uh, Georgia's voting systems. Thank you, sir. Thank you very well, much. I'll tell you what, if yeah. you call me back in, in about two or three months, maybe I will have changed on impeachment. Well, I, I may take you up on that, sir. Congressman Hank Johnson from Georgia's 4th Congressional District. You can, of course, find out more uh, on him at hankjohnson.house.gov. And you can find him on the Twitters at Rep. Hank Johnson. He's a member of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee and the chair of the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Courts, Intellectual Property, and Internet. Thank you, Congressman. It's always a delight to speak with you, my friend. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay. Um, I did it again, didn't I, Des? Yes. <laughs> okay. We're out of time. We are. A quick break. We're back with our closing few minutes right after this. I'm Brad Friedman.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In all fairness, it's not really my fault that we ran so late, is it? <laughs> no, no. I have to say, Representative Johnson has a lot of really interesting stuff to say. He's got a lot to say. He's kind of a slow talker. Well, and, he is from and, the South. And, and I had a lot of questions to ask, so <laughs> it's everyone's fault. I'm sorry about that. Uh, anyway, uh, w- uh, what did you think, by the way, of his thoughts on uh, why he's not on the uh, impeachment, why he's not on board on, board on the uh, impeachment inquiry? Well, I believe that he made a good case for it. Um, and I understand the thinking behind that, that right now the Democrats seem to feel that it's going to endanger their House majority. And that right now is kind of super critical to hang on to. But, you know, the more that they talk about it, hopefully, the more the public will change in its polling. He called this uh, what they're doing now is in the nature of an impeachment inquiry. Yeah. And I guess there's a very real concern that it will somehow put the House in danger. I don't think that it will in danger of, you know, going somehow to uh, Republicans. I don't think it will. I think they're totally wrong. But I think they have a legitimate case that they believe in correctly or incorrectly. I was also, by the way, very happy to hear uh, and we got to talk with him a little bit more during the break uh, that he is uh, very well read up on what is going on in the uh, fight over those 100 percent unverifiable voting machines that are coming into Georgia. Yes. Good to know. So I'm glad he's paying attention to that uh, closely as well. And I am particularly happy that he has not forgotten about Brett Kavanaugh. No. It'll be interesting to see what comes back in those documents if they ever are able to get them. And I was also happy to hear that he sounded quite, oh, it took him a while to answer it, but he was quite open, it sounded like, to the idea, at least, of expanding the Supreme Court. Very interesting times. Interesting times. May you live in interesting times, (laughs) says the old Chinese curse. I think we are cursed. All right, that's it. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, of course, to Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia's 4th Congressional District, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We will be back again tomorrow. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, I hope you will feel free to download it from bradblog.com for free, which is thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to support our work here with either a one-time donation or even better an automated uh, sustaining monthly pledge for our work you know you listen to us every day why not pitch in a little something into the tip jar we could really use it you can drop me an email if you like i'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the facebooks and the twitters i am simply the brad blog that's it until we meet again I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.